Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Uh, so this week, I received uh, uh, an unwelcome mail um, from the state of Arizona informing me um, that I had a traffic violation. Yeah, I uh, apparently went through a red light while we were in Arizona uh, last month. Um, And sure enough, inside with the citation, there was another piece of paper that had a series of pictures. One of them was a picture of the driver. And yes, it was me. (laughs) And then there were a couple of other pictures. One was a picture of our car entering the intersection. The other was a picture of our car exiting the intersection. And in both pictures, the light is clearly yellow. I just want you to know. That, but, but the thing is, see, my wife and I have had this ongoing discussion <laughs> about yellow lights and the legalities of all of that. And uh, I have always maintained that if the light turns yellow as you're approaching the intersection, you're supposed to proceed on through. You don't want to slam on your brakes and have somebody rear-end you, right? And the light is yellow. That means warning. It's not red. It doesn't say stop. It says proceed with caution. And uh, my wife, however, is of the opinion that if the light turns yellow, you cannot enter that intersection at all. And apparently, she's right. And I'm wrong, at least in the state of Arizona. A fact, by the way, she has had great pleasure in rejoicing in for this last week. See, there is this thing called the law of consequences. That if you run a red light, you get a citation. If you run a yellow light in Arizona, you get a citation. That Jesus talked about it. He talked about this idea is that you reap what you sow. Whatever seed you plant, that's, the, that's what's going to grow from it. And there is this law of consequences. And I think we all believe that. I mean, we all know that to be true. For the most part, you have certain actions or behaviors. It results in certain consequences. Um, and and, and you've got to pay that price for that. And we all know that. But there's also something deep inside every one of us that tells us, but it doesn't apply to me. You see, you don't know my circumstances. My situation is different. I get an exemption. I have the get free out of jail card, okay? There's something inside of all of us that says, yeah, we know that to be true, but somehow that doesn't really apply to me. I can can lie and get away with it. I, I can neglect my family and still have a solid home life. I can put in the minimal effort at work and I should still get the raise that everybody else is getting. I can neglect my time with God and spiritual disciplines of reading scripture and prayer and gathering in worship and still have a vibrant, strong, deep relationship with Him. We think it doesn't apply to me. But you see, that thinking, that ability to kind of justify ourselves and our own behavior is one of the greatest obstacles that come up, that we come up against in terms of having the relationship with God and the life with God that he designed and intended for us to have. And it is the subject pretty much 
of the book of Judges, which is where we are this week in the story. And for those of you who are kind of catching up with us, a um, couple of weeks ago, we've been looking at the, the whole, from Genesis to Revelation, we've been through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and we're now in Judges. So the story so far, brief synopsis is, Moses was called by God to lead the nation of Israel out of their slavery, out of their captivity in Egypt, and bring them to the land of promise. And he did. He led them out of that captivity. He, um, he brought to them the law of God. He led them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and brought them right up to the land of promise. And then his time was over. He died. And God raised up Joshua to lead and bring the nation of Israel into the land that God had promised them. And so he led them through the conquest of the land of Canaan so that they settled into that land. And where we are in the story right now is that Joshua has now died. And the people have now taken possession of the land. They have all, all 12 tribes of Israel have taken different ports, parts of this, this territory now. And they have settled in and they are at a crossroads. And the big question here now before them is, Will we be a nation that follows God? Will we be a people that loves God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And love, will we love one another as we love ourselves, as God had said? Will we be the blessing to all the nations of the world in the way that God promised our ancestor Abraham? Will we live that out? Will we be a nation that is faithful and devoted and, 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 and committed to the ways of God? Will we be that people or will we not? The answer, sadly, we find in the book of Judges. Chapter 2, if you want to turn there with me. I'm going to read you beginning verse uh, verse 10. And uh, by the way, if you have your copy of the story, that's page 103. And uh, here's where we pick up the story. After that, after Joshua and settling the land... After that, the whole generation, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Somebody asked me that week, this week, what does that mean? What did gathered to their, it means they died. Okay, it's just a fancy way of saying they died. Okay, when that whole generation that came into the land of, con- of, of conquest in, in Canaan had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who, neither knew, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. And they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. And they quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed him and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. There is this pattern all through the book of Judges, where God brings them into a time of peace, shalom. 
that God intended them to live. Right relationship with him, right relationship with each other. He brings them into this time of peace. But in that time of peace, the people grow complacent. And in their complacency, they begin to give themselves to sin and evil practices. Which results in the consequences of pain and affliction and being raided and oppressed by these other nations. To the point where the pain gets so great that they cry out to God and God raises up a, a, a rescuer, a savior, to come and put to, put to flight those enemies that are oppressing them and ushers in a new time of peace. And in that peace, they grow complacent and give themselves to sin, which results in the consequences of pain till they cry out to God who raises up a rescuer to usher in a time of peace in which they grow complacent, <laughs> give themselves to sin, or, uh, you know, which results in the pain, and on and on and on it goes. It's a cycle, a vicious cycle they find themselves in over and over and over again. Sin, pain, rescue, peace. Sin, pain, rescue, peace. And you know what? As a pastor for over 30 years, I have seen that cycle play out in individual lives time and time again. People do well with God and God blesses them, brings them peace with him, but they get complacent in that and they go off either, either in outright rebellion to God or just in a subtle drifting away from him and that relationship with him and indulge in sin that results in pain where they get to the point where they finally cry out for God's help and God's rescues them only to do the cycle over and over again. How do you break that cycle? Those patterns of behavior, those patterns of, of, of actions that we get involved in that just do damage on a soul level. How do you break that cycle? Well, I think there are some things in the book of Judges as we go through this together that you're going to see we can learn from their mistakes. And in learning from their mistakes, break that cycle and actually use that, that, um, that law of consequences to our advantage. We can do positive things that plant positive seed that brings about positive uh, reap, uh, 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 harvest in our own lives. And that's kind of what I want to go with this morning. Some determinations that you can make in your life that will help you break that cycle and change it completely. And the first is this. Make a determination to intentionally live out your faith. There's a very telling sentence in the very beginning of the section that we read this morning. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A whole generation grows up not knowing. Now, how does that happen? Whose fault is that? It is not, I don't think it is, I do not think it is the fault of that generation. I think the fault and the blame lies with the previous generation. How do they grow up not knowing? Because the generation before them never lived it out. Oh, they knew the stories. Oh, yeah, they, they, they went to synagogue. <laughs> See, they, they knew all that stuff, but it never became a part of their lives. Their, their, their religion was reduced to empty, meaningless, dry ritual. That their faith was simply a once-a-week event. There was no life. There was no vibrancy. There was no depth to their faith. So they had nothing to pass on to the next generation. 
See, that's why here at Northgate, we have made such a premium, such an importance on our children's ministry and on our youth ministry, because it's our job to pass that on to the next generation. And we want to give the best, um, best ministry that we can to our students and to our, to our children, because we want them to see that this is a living thing. This is a vibrant faith. And we have so many people. And as we're starting this fourth Sunday service, why, why it's so important that we get people to help in our children's ministry and in our youth ministry, because we need people to be able to provide that level of teaching where our next generation learns the lessons. In fact, I know a lot of them are already working in the children's ministry or in the youth ministry this morning, but if you're here this morning, you're you're attending this service, and you serve in some area in our youth ministry, in our children's ministry, would you just please stand because you deserve a round of applause. Anybody who's involved in youth ministry, would you stand up? Yeah. What you do, what you do is so vital, so vital. And by the way, it's not their job to do that for you, parents. We are partners with you in that. The church provides something, but you have to live it out. See, it's got it's to get beyond a Sunday ritual for you. It's got to become something very, very real. Every generation needs to experience that depth of relationship with God for themselves and needs to also be able to pass it on to the next generation. Last month, my dad turned 85 years old. My parents raised us pretty much in church. If the doors were open, we were there. <laughs> And that was pretty much it. And, 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 and we, great, great foundation for my faith and my brother and my sister's faith. It was great what our church provided for us. But more than that, more than that is what I saw in the lives of my parents, what I saw in the life of my dad. Because his faith wasn't just a weekend experience or event. It was something that he lived. And he lived it in the way that he raised his family. He did it in the way that he practiced his business. He was a building contractor, which is a business in which you can be pretty shady and cut corners and make a lot of money, but he never did that. He always dealt with honesty and integrity and with quality in what he did. He did it even in his sailing and in his racing. Now, don't get me wrong. My dad is competitive. It's where I got it from, okay? And, and he took season, his boat took season champion more than one occasion, okay? I know because I crewed with him, okay? He was very, very competitive, but he always did it with fairness and with grace. And as important as a church can be and a church family and a church ministry to our children or youth can be to a family as a help and an aid, ultimately, it's got to come down to you. And the best thing you can do in breaking the cycle of that, that vicious cycle in your own life, and the best thing you can do for future generations is to simply intentionally live out your faith on a daily basis. Now, there are no guarantees. Let me say that up front. Okay, there are no guarantees. Because I have seen some of the best, most godly parents have kids who make choices and go a different direction. And I have seen some of the worst parents <laughs> that I can think of have Godly children come of that. There are no guarantees. But the law of sowing and reaping, the law of consequences says, if you will plant those seeds, there is something there that can sprout, take root, and grow. But if you don't plant those seeds, the odds are against the next generation. So live it out. Live it out. And don't just live it out. 
talk about it. That's what Moses told. When he gave the nation of Israel the commandments, this is what he said at the end of them. He says, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. In other words, it's your life. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, live it. But don't just live it. Talk about it. Tell the stories of God's faithfulness in your life. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about um, the wilderness wanderings and how God can use some of the most difficult, dry times of your life to do some of his best and deepest work. And, and uh, came home, and Betty said, that was my wife, who's kind of my corner critic. She kind of keeps me humble. Um, she said, you know, that was really, really good, but you didn't tell any of your stories of wilderness wanderings. You know, the times that you've gone through that have been dry and, 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 and difficult and how God uses it. I said, yeah, but I have told those stories. I have told so many of those stories. Nobody wants to hear my stories ever again. She said, wait, there are people there who have never heard some of those stories. She was right. Again. <laughs> but it is so important that we tell those stories. One of the biggest things, when we were looking 25 years ago and thinking about planting this church, and we were leaving a very strong church with strong, strong children's ministries. And one of my greatest fears, one of my greatest apprehensions was, because our kids were in first grade and third grade at the time, and it's like, you know, we're going to go plant this church, and we're not going to have that children's ministry. We're not going to probably have that for quite a while. And I thought, all of that heritage that I got growing up, they're not going to get. And that was one of my greatest fears in all of this. But here's what I discovered. There were things that my kids learned about faith and God's faithfulness and God's provision and miracles in the beginnings of this church that far outweigh 100 Sunday school lessons. Oh, now we got a great children's ministry and we had a good youth ministry by the time they got to that age. But you know what? The experiences are absolutely vital. So determine to live your life, your faith out in your everyday life. I think a second thing is this. Earnestly eliminate the destructive behaviors that you find yourself caught in. There is this vicious cycle. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them. That cycle, by the way, repeats itself 12 times. 12 times. Over and over and over again. And in fact... As it goes through the cycle, they get worse and worse and worse. Now, you would think they would learn. See, the whole thing through the whole time of the judges is God is trying to teach them a lesson. That there are consequences to your behaviors. If you defy me, if you deny me, if you do your own thing and ignore me, bad things happen. You just go down a road that is not healthy for you. It is destructive to you as a nation. It is destructive to you as individuals. And they never seem to get it. They never seem to learn the lesson. Now listen, if a kid puts his hand on a hot stove and burns it, he will learn the lesson. If he doesn't the first time, he will probably learn it the second time or the third time. And even if he is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, eventually he will learn the lesson. But 12 times they go through this cycle. 12 times God raises up a rescuer. 12, 12 times. And they don't seem to learn the lesson. Because they never got to the root of it. We have our house, um, our backyard butts up against open space. It's kind of a hill and then it's open space behind it. And because it's open space um, with the Benicia winds, um, we get all kinds of weed, seed, 
planting itself in our yard as much as I try not to. And, and one of them, I don't know if any of you have this, the anise plant, the anise weed. Okay? It, it, you can't get rid of this thing. Okay? It grows to about this high. It stinks. Um, we call it licorice plants when we were kids. And, and the biggest problem of it is you can't get it out because its roots go down deep, deep, even in dry soil. And it goes down so deep. And the stalks are actually hollow tubes. So when you try to pull it out, the stalks just break off and the root stays. And I have tried for years to get all of the root out. I dig down and I think I got, but the root breaks off and just a little bit of root left in there. And the plant is back the next year. If you don't get to the root of it, it's going to keep coming back. And the problem that the nation of Israel had is because they didn't get to the root of it. It goes all the way back to the chapter before when it talks about them moving in and taking over the land. And you read through it and it goes like this. The Benjaminites, Benjaminites did not, Benjamin was one of the tribes of Israel, did not drive out the Jebusites, nor did Ephraim, one of the other tribes, drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Neither did Zebulun, one of the other tribes, drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron. The Asherites, Asher was another tribe, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. Now, that was the root of the problem. They allowed these little pockets of resistance to remain. And those pockets of resistance became the very thing that plagued and troubled them all the rest of their history through the book of Judges. One of the big questions I've gotten the last couple of weeks as we've been reading through the story, uh, particularly where God tells the nation of Israel, come and drive those people. Do not let them live among you. Drive them out. Kill them. Destroy their culture. Get rid of them completely. And one of the big questions I keep getting from people is, wait a minute. I thought God was a God of mercy and grace. How come he's telling the Israelites to totally destroy these people? What's going on here? And there's a couple of things you need to know about these cultures that were living there. They were vile, despicable people. They were horrible. They were warring different tribes, and they were, constant, they were vicious. They were violent. They were constantly at war with each other, constantly at war with other people. They were just violent, violent cultures. On top of that, they were just depraved. They worshipped the Baals. And some of the worship, they worshipped Molech. Molech, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, where, where people actually offered their children as sacrifice to the god, Molech. Child sacrifice. In, in the worship of the Baals, the Baals were like fertility gods. And part of their worship, their sanctioned worship, was temple prostitution. Because at each harvest, you needed to go and, and, and be with the temple prostitutes to ensure a fertility for the next harvest season. And that was a part of the culture. So much so that parents, fathers, mothers would give their young daughters to the temple, to be prostitutes at the temple. Can you imagine that? And not just female prostitutes, but male prostitutes as well. Just horrific things were being done. Their worship so often involved drunken orgies and just all kinds of debased things. Horrible, horrible people. And, and by the way, God had been very, very patient with these people. You might remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities in Canaan. Abraham, 400 years before then, had to rescue his nephew Lot before God destroyed the city. And God told Abraham ahead of time that he was going to destroy these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham pleaded with God. He said, will you destroy the innocent along with those who are guilty? In fact, if God, if there are 
50 righteous people, would you save that city for 50 righteous people? And God said, for 50 righteous people, I would save that city. And Abraham says, well, how about 45? I mean, would you kill a whole people just because of five people who aren't? Would you do it for 40? God said, for 45 righteous people, I would save that city. Do I hear 30? <laughs> God, for 30 righteous people, would you save that? For 30 righteous people, I would save that city. For 20? For 20, I would rescue the, I would save that city. For 10, God, for 10 righteous people in that city, would you save that city? And there were not even 10 righteous people in those cities. And that was 400 years previously. And it got worse and worse and worse over 400 years. And in fact, God had told Abraham, I'm going to give this, na- this land to your people, your descendants. They're going to inhabit this land, but not yet. Not yet, because their sin has not reached its full measure yet. God had been incredibly patient with these people to the point where there's nothing more that can be done. They have to be destroyed. What God was doing was performing some spiritual surgery on the land. He was cutting out a cancer that he knew could infect his people. And he is raising up a people who will serve a one and only God who will recognize his rule in their own lives and in their nation, who will love him with all their heart, will love one another as they love themselves, who will live holy and righteous and be a blessing to it. And God knew, God knew that if these were allowed to remain, these pockets of resistance would be allowed to remain, they would infect and fester and ruin his people. And that's exactly what happened. The very people, these pockets of resistance that they refused to drive out for whatever reason... They let them remain there. They became an influence and actually subverted and seduced the nation of Israel to the point where God actually uses the words, my people have prostituted themselves to these other gods. And he's speaking literally. See, here's the deal. When you allow those little pockets of sin, those behaviors, those actions... If you allow them to remain in your life, they will be a constant source of struggle and of pain and of of breaking of you. And I know human nature enough, I know myself enough to know there are pockets of resistance in me and you. And some of them maybe you have struggled with for years and years and years to the point where you've come to the place where you've just decided, you know what, it's never going to change I'm never going to get over this. And you just learn to accept it. And I will tell you, as long as you're willing to let it be there, as long as you're willing to accept it, it will be a constant source of struggle and pain in your life. And no matter how long you have battled with it or how defeated you might be in it, do not give in. Do not accept it in your life. Keep, and many times as you have failed at it, keep pressing on. Do not let it take hold. Because it will infect and it will be a constant source of destruction in your soul. Now here's the good news. That God in his mercy and his grace always brings a rescuer. 
No matter how many times they failed, no matter how many times they, they just messed up royally, any time they cried out, God brought a rescuer, which is the third thing that I want to give you this morning. Be willing to humbly offer yourself for God's use. The Lord raised up judges who saved them. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. Every time they cried out, God raised up a rescuer. God raised up a judge. Now, I need to clarify that because when we think judge, we think black robe, quiet courtroom, and a big gavel, okay? Keep everybody in line. These judges were not that. These judges were people that God raised up to stand against the tide of the society and the culture who are willing to be used by God. They became the political leaders, the military leaders, the spiritual leaders for the nation of Israel. They brought about the reforms that were needed. And they, by the way, were not perfect people. They all had their own struggles. None of them were strong enough in their own. They all had their own battles that they fought. Let me tell you about a couple of them. Ehud. Ehud is one is mentioned. It says that he was left-handed. Now, the wording in that actually seems to suggest not just that he was a southpaw, that it actually, that he was disabled in some way in his right hand, that he didn't have the strength that everybody else had. But God used him, even though he was weak. Deborah, Deborah was a woman. God raised up as a judge. In an extremely patriarchal, man-dominated society, God raised up a woman where no one else could. No, no one else would. She, God raised her up, and she was willing to be used by God, despite the fact that most people, most of the men, would not look to her as a leader. God raised her up. Gideon. Gideon, the story of Gideon, if you haven't read that one, it's incredible. He, he was incredibly, he was, he was the weakest member of his family. And his family was the weakest in the whole tribe. And his tribe was the weakest in all Israel. And yet God appears to him through an angel and calls him to do this work. And he says, hail, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> As he's hiding down in the wine press for fear of the raiders. <laughs> Not the Oakland raiders, that's okay. <laughs> the Midianite raiders. Didn't know they had a football team. No. Um, he had serious fear issues. But he was willing to let God use him. Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute and an outcast in his own society. Yet God raised him up as a judge in Israel. Samson. If you know the Samson story, you know he had serious anger issues. <laughs> Not to mention his problem with lust and pride. But God used him. See, here's the deal. If God can use them, he can use you. No matter how weak or ineffective you might feel, if you will simply be willing to stand against the tide, if you were, even with your flaws, even with your failures, even with your struggles, if God can use them, he can use you. But all he asks is that you be willing. And here's what happens. When you allow yourself for God's use to serve him in some way in this world, Here's how it brings, breaks that cycle and brings strength to you. First off, it takes your eyes off of you and your problems and your struggles because your focus becomes on somebody else and what God wants to do through you to help them. The other thing that it does is you begin to experience God's power in your life in a way you never would if you just focused on you. Then you, become to a point, you come to a point where you become totally dependent on him and you discover and experience his power and his strength working for you and through you. And it's part of breaking that cycle in your own life. They weren't perfect. They had their flaws. But God raised them up. But here's the thing. 
God raised them up and brought them, and they became rescuers, and they ushered in the time of peace, but it was always temporary. When the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Why did that keep happening? Because the people were flawed, and their judges were flawed. Because no amount of human effort and no amount of human methodology is truly going to release you from the cycle or pattern that you find yourself stuck in. It takes something more. And God knew that. And so some thousand years later, God sent his own rescuer. God himself, Jesus Christ, came. And he lived a human life totally pleasing to God. He had no flaws. He had no sin. So when he died on the cross... He was paying the consequences of your sin and mine. He was paying the price for my disobedience and my drifting and my rebellion and yours. And he who had every right to be the righteous judge didn't come to judge. He came to give his life so that we could be rescued. You probably know John 3.16 by heart, but I don't know if you know the second sentence. John 3.17 God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. God ultimately came to break that cycle in this world and in your life. And now we no longer have to pay the consequences for our actions and behavior. We no longer have to reap the seeds of sin that we sow because Christ came and paid the consequences for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.